Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Hello, welcome everyone to another episode of Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me. I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Today we are talking about the book of Numbers. Uh, We did Leviticus before. Christopher, you and I were talking beforehand about how we don't really care for this name for the book of Numbers. It just sounds super boring, even though, yes, there's there's definitely some <laughs> some monotonous stuff going on here at, at times. But uh, the the Jewish name for this book, or I should say, you know, the Hebrew name for this book is is much more interesting and appropriate, you know, Bamidbar, which is wilderness, or or this book is it pertaining to the in the wilderness, so to speak. Um, now that the, you know the people are already in the wilderness, but this is a book that focuses specifically on their travels in the wilderness and the things that happen there. And so, uh, you know, they're literally in the wilderness, right, in the story. But metaphorically, here there's a lot more going on with this wilderness setting and uh, concept. So it it just fits a lot more to call it, you know, the wilderness, the book of the wilderness, so to speak, than than numbers. Numbers doesn't tell us a whole lot. Yeah, that comes from the censuses at the beginning and the end of the book only. But that's just, you know, a couple of chapters. You know, we we also kind of got the sense, Christopher, as we were reading through this book, all 36 chapters of it, right? You know, Come Follow Me uh, touches on three or four but uh, we we went through all of it, um, and you kind of get the sense as you're reading through this that you're you're actually living this wilderness experience, right? There's there's uh, these moments of distress and and moments that you get thirsty and are wondering where the water is, and <laughs> you got to stop for a snack and stuff yeah. like that. You got to take a break <laughs> because it's. Uh, it's long and and there's some difficult parts in it, uh, a lot of difficult parts in it, um, and and I will say though, goodness, if you would have asked me, okay, Leviticus, what do you have to say about Leviticus? And I said this this last recording, last episode, um, I would say I, I don't really have anything to say about Leviticus, and and then I would say, and I have I have even less to say about Numbers, right? <laughs> so, but. Uh, having yeah. said that, I I think uh, as as difficult as Leviticus was, um, you know, I brought up the game Tetris as as a metaphor last time. We uh, I I feel like with numbers we've moved to the next level of of Tetris here and <laughs> trying to get everything situated and fit. And and they're coming faster and, and faster, faster, and you can't get faster. a good teaspoon, right? You know, I don't I don't know about you, Ben, but I spent six straight hours reading. Numbers. I read it from beginning to end in one sitting. It took me six hours. And then you and I both listened to a few and a half hours of, uh, you know, four and a half hours of commentary, some really good commentary too. We wanted to listen to more. We couldn't find more. Right. Yeah. Um, 
so the there I'll get to it in a bit you know there's one particular person uh woman that that does some commentary on the book of numbers and and other stuff as well that uh, we thought was particularly meaningful and helpful and profound you know the the book of numbers deals with a lot of different themes here and one of the principal ones is just death right there's there's a lot of death going on in this book um spoiler yeah. in the end everybody yeah. dies yeah the whole first generation dies right uh now moses's death isn't recorded here we do have uh, aaron's and miriam's um but you know moses is chronologically going to die here very soon after the book of numbers we just get deuteronomy which is you know like his last will and testament right and then moses is is going to die so the idea here is that before they enter the promised land uh, the lord says here that that all of that first generation with two interesting exceptions are going to die so that that death is this constant thing that's happening which is appropriate i should say just to the setting right the wilderness is a place of death it's it's a place not fit for human habitation right you know that they go there and it's like we we're not supposed to be here we're not supposed to be living here and and yet they end up living there for these 40 years um which becomes representative of the generation yeah it's supposed to be a two week trip yeah. right two weeks uh from egypt to to canaan yeah. right and they end up there 40 years and swallowed up by the earth some uh in in one story literally right yeah yeah, and you know, you don't get a sense, you don't really, you don't know that all the death is happening as it's happening. You really, it really hits you when you get to the second census at the end. And that's when you really find out that, whoa, everybody from that first generation is dead. I mean, all but a couple of people. Right. Yeah, I mean, and, and the censuses, we'll, we'll talk about that here in a bit. You know, they, they the, the actual numbers that are counted right here in, in the book of numbers, these are extremely large uh, figures. And um, <clears throat> from a scholarly point of view, there's there's no way to justify the the size of these numbers. And so we, we could look at them as more symbolic of this idea of, of the fertility, of the fulfillment of this fertility blessing of the descendants of Israel, right? To multiply and replenish the earth and that they would, you know, his descendants would be like the sands of the sea. And so that's the idea here is that this is that large posterity, and this is the fulfillment of of that blessing. Another theme that is really prominent throughout this book of Numbers is that of skepticism. You know, the the people are are very skeptical of Moses, of God, of their situation, of 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 existence, um, of life, and uh, that comes through uh, a lot in this book. And so it's. It's kind of not something that you maybe always would expect to see in scripture, right? You know, scripture is supposed to be about hope and faith and all this stuff. And yet this book has has these very uh, dark, skeptical moments in it uh, that really evoke a lot of philosophical deliberation, I guess you could say. Yeah. But on top of that, there, you know, as we go through it, we see moments of, of hope uh, that the people are are looking towards this promised land. Um the idea is is that they are are quote unquote destined for that even at even when there's times when the Lord isn't so sure that he wants to follow through with that promise, right? As we saw with Mount Sinai as well. 
they've got rebellions going on, but ultimately there's a there's a a catastrophe that happens in the middle of this book where they fail and um you know we'll we'll talk about that more than we get when we get to it as well the the main overlay of this book is you have the the first generation that is living in the wilderness and they uh there's a part of the book where it talks about them in the wilderness and how everything's supposed to be organized and it goes into a lot of ordinances and everything and then they go on a journey and um during this journey there's lots of the murmurings and rebellions and and problems that go on and that whole first generation dies and then when they get to the plains of Moab which is this this part that's this closer to when they're going to enter into the promised land you have the last of that first generation that's dying and then the entrance of of the second generation um there's a lot of divine violence in this book um even more so than than the previous ones right that it really starts reaching a crescendo i would say in the book of numbers and it's not just violence against the enemies of god's people in this book we have god being violent against quote unquote his own people right so this is something that uh that we'll wrestle with a little bit and some try to give some perspectives on. Um, there's lots of different ways to take it, and and hopefully we can provide some some helpful ways to navigate that. I would say anybody that is uncomfortable with the divine violence in the Bible, but even specifically in the book of Numbers, you're not alone, right? Uh, you should be uncomfortable with it. And I don't think you should let anybody talk you out of it either. And I think yeah. our our approach isn't going to be like apologetic in, in in terms of oh this isn't really violence. There may be moments when you could say well this didn't really happen this way, um, but ultimately the the text seems to be advocating it as just right one way or another. And so how do we wrestle with that? How do we approach that? Yeah, maybe we can put a purportedly in front of divine violence. Purportedly yeah, sure. divine violence. Sure. We'll talk more about that. So. Uh, a lot of the insights that I got um, out of the book of Numbers, or at least what kind of helped me crack this nut, so to speak, <laughs> of, of difficulty, was uh, commentary um, and synopsis brought in by a, a scholar, and, and I'm not sure exactly how her name is pronounced, but I think it's Aviva Zornberg. That sounds she, right. Yeah. So she has, I think, multiple PhDs in uh, you know English literature and then um, ancient you know Hebrew scripture. I don't think she does, Ben. I think she has a PhD. Is it just in English, English literature? literature? Okay. And then she left academia okay. to focus on adult continuing education in you know in her tradition as a Torah teacher, and she's a great Torah teacher. She did teach at Hebrew University. Um, she she's written several books um one in particular that i came across actually you you turned me on to it christopher and then i went ahead and bought it but found i i wasn't going to have enough time to read all of it and so what happened is i read the preface and i was just so blown away with her way just her language and then her way of approaching everything in in the book 
that I was like, oh, I really, really need to understand the some of the main points she has to make about this. And there's no way I'm going to be able to get through the book and digest it to to you know be able to to use these things. And so I went on YouTube because I knew that she had lectures there. I went on YouTube. Yeah, her books are based on the lectures. Okay, great. And I found some of the lectures she did on uh, the book of Numbers. I wish I had found more, but um, three in particular. And those were uh, some of the most profound commentary that I have ever seen on probably any scripture, honestly. And it was so surprising to me because here this commentary, this profound commentary is coming to me out of the book of Numbers. (laughs) And something that, yeah. you know, uh, a year or two ago, That's I would have point. said, there's, there's just not much there, you know, like, and, and yet there's a talking, uh, there's donkey, a talking you know, donkey and a, a, a snake on yeah. a stick, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I want to put in a plug for going to the bookstore because I found Aviva Zornberg by just happening upon her book on Leviticus after we had already recorded on Leviticus. And so that's how I found her. You know, you can you can shop online for the book you're looking for, but the book that's looking for you, you have to find at the bookstore. <laughs> so go to the bookstore. So yeah, her book on on numbers is called Bewilderments. And even though I've only read the preface and uh, like the first couple pages of the first chapter, I I can't recommend it highly enough. It's it's beautiful writing and very dense and profound. And insightful. Yeah. You know, Ben, you said that you thought the preface alone was worth the price of the book. Sure. Yeah. But, it, you know, it turns out you can get most of the preface, if not all of it, you know, through Kindle, you can just do like the free sample, right? So like if anybody doubts, you know, the, the value of this, just just go get the the free sample and, and just read through that and uh, chew on it for a bit. <laughs> So other than that, you know, the the preface, I read that too. And, and these lectures, you found parts two, three, and four of, of her lectures on on numbers. We read the usual NRSV study Bible yeah. with commentary, right? And then, of course, you know, Ben, you there's some Book of Mormon stuff that you're going to bring in too, right? Sure. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, uh, parallels here to uh, Book of Mormon stuff. There's there's a lot to talk about here, Ben. I'll just I'll just say this here on on the mic. You know, you and I just spent two hours talking <laughs> about what we're going to talk about <laughs> before talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, our, one of our editors, Tom, he he said we we really need to stick to an hour and a half, though. So. <laughs> no, he said two hours. You said. Oh, an did hour he? And a half. <laughs> He said oh, two hours. He, he two said, hours? I'm capping this at two okay, hours. Okay. Yeah. And you said, we'll, we'll shoot for That's an hour right. and a half, That's which right. is how okay. we cap it at two I hours. I had in my right? mind, yeah. we're going to shoot for an hour and a half. So, okay, let's go for it. Good. <laughs> All right. So, um, let's get yeah, into the book of numbers. This is, uh, so one of the, the commentaries in the, the Oxford uh, commentary on this, it talks about the book of numbers as being an imagined past uh, of the people that. So an imagined past in which the life of faith, it says, is a rite of passage that requires the Israelite people to follow God through the wilderness toward the goal of reaching the promised land. And so just that phrase, you know, imagined past, I I know can be a pretty controversial statement, right? The idea that this wouldn't be like literal history. And I, I would really, you know, strongly recommend that if you have 
sort of misgivings about that idea that that numbers isn't literal history that um you're going to miss a lot of what it has to offer you scripturally if you get hung up on um this idea that it has to be literal history there's there's so much that is that is going to be missed now i'm i'm not saying that you have to um let go of that but if you insist on it then i i think you're going to miss a lot so another thing is to maybe listen to our first episode when we started, you know, before we started going to the Bible, we recorded this, what was it, a three-hour episode on yeah, what is the yeah. Bible? And so we go into this, but just to, to, to bring out one point from that, and that is that to do history, you have to have three things that the, uh, that the authors of this, these texts do not have, did not have. One, knowledge of foreign languages they didn't have. Two, archaeology they didn't have. Three, anthropology, they didn't have. But more importantly than all three of those would be a desire to write history. Of course, you know, you couldn't actually desire something that you, you don't have access to or the possibility of, but that's just the point, right, is that's not what they're up yes. to. So if anything, we're talking about etiology, which is these are stories that tell us how things became the way they are. Right. Here, starting right off in chapter one, we get a census of the people. So this is where the the name of the book comes from, you know, numbers. We're going to count the people. And the idea be- behind the counting of the people here is that well there, there's multiple ideas but but one of the main ideas behind the counting of the people is the idea that this is a census that is a marshaling for battle, right? So this is the their conceptualizing of the camp of the Israelites as an army. And so that's why you have all of the counting of males 20 and up, right? And that's what's counted. So when we get the number, that's just the males 20 and up. And so then you extrapolate from that uh, the totals of the population, and it would be something like several million, um, which again, scholarly, historically speaking, is just not a possible number of a people of a group moving through the wilderness. And so <clears throat> we're looking at this number as uh, representational of the fulfillment of this fertility blessing. Um, and then also a an assertion, you know, from a historically uh, nationalistic point of view of saying this nation, this tribe is capable and ready to do battle with anybody at anywhere, anywhere at any time. Yeah, fair enough. And, and that brings us to, you know, skipping all the way to the end, we're going to go into Canaan and conquer. And this is something that not only is there any historical evidence for that this ever happened, but that there's ample evidence against. And in fact, what this means is that, you know, that what the evidence shows is that rather than conquer, that the Israelites actually moved in peacefully and cohabitated with the, the the Canaanites, and so what this becomes then is I would I'm calling it an ancient Near Eastern deterrent, like our nuclear deterrent today, which is we have this story about how we came in and took over, and and we have these huge armies, so you better not mess with us, and let's let's get that story out there, right, um. Part of the organization that's going on in this chapter 
uh, in these first chapters is talking about how the camp is going to be organized as when they're camped and then as they move. And so you have the tabernacle at the center uh, with the tribe of Levi, and then going out from that, you have the other tribes all organized in a pattern. And the idea is that as you're closer to that tabernacle, that center, you're closer to the presence of God, you're more holy. So that's why you have the Levites there at the center, which I should mention the Levites in in this case, they are not part of the census. And the idea there is that they are not to go out to battle because they are dedicated to God. They're set apart to God. They are have a specific purpose, and that's to tend that holy space. And so they're not supposed to go out and fight the battles. The One of the reasons I think this is a, an interesting thing to bring up in, in our Latter-day Peace Studies context is that the Levites are supposed to be representative of the people as a whole, representative of the ideal that they're supposed to be aspiring to living, and that's approaching the divine, um, you know, becoming clean, uh, entering his presence. And so uh, the Levites are, are supposed to show the people in that way and act in their behalf. And so if the idea is that they can't participate in battle— then the idea is that the ideal is that the people don't as well, because that is the holiness and set apartness that they're aspiring to. Yeah, later on we get that they, you know, that some people are prophesying, and for some this is a problem. But really, the the message we take away from the text is that it would that everyone would be a prophet. So would that everyone would have this this uh, set apartness, right? This this consecration to the Lord and would not be a part of battle. And, you know, of course, you know, with the, the narrative that we get of the, the violent conquest of Canaan, which again is historically um, questionable, it, it doesn't look like they live up to this ideal in the text, right. but it does look like that is the ideal. Right. So that's kind of chapter one. Christopher, what, what did you have to say? Did you have something to say about chapter two? No, chapter three. Okay. Going back to going back to Nadab and Abihu. Oh yes. So back in Leviticus, when we covered Leviticus, there's one part of the whole book of Leviticus that's actually narrative, and because of the way that we dealt with the book of Leviticus, we didn't go into that. We didn't actually cover that narrative, and so that shows up again here. It comes up again in Numbers three, that Nadab and Abihu we read in verse four, reading from the NRSV translation died before the Lord when they offered unholy fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. And so this is, you know, in the KJV, we get not unholy fire, but strange fire, right? And we should read strange not as odd, but as foreign. Foreign, right? It's foreign to the context in which they've brought it in. So in my reading, uh, really through, again, Aviva Zornberg, and she's actually... Her sources are so rabbinical, right? Midrash, she's bringing in uh, psychological interpretations and even philosophical interpretations. She deals with, you know, Levinas and even, um, what is his name, Cavell, you know, when it comes to skepticism. He's one of the foremost philosophers uh, writing about skepticism today. 
So looking at this strange fire, it looks like they brought this fire from their home. So if we go back to the context in Leviticus, going back to Leviticus, they show up in in chapter 10, but I want to go back to chapter 9. At the end of chapter 9, what's happening is, verse 23, Moses and Aaron entered the tent of meeting and came out and blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So again, this is NRSV. So you have the presence of the Lord as fire. The fire that burns the sacrifices is that same divine presence. And now in chapter 10, when Aaron sends Nedab and Abihu, each took his censer, put fire in it and laid incense on it. And they offered unholy fire before the Lord, such as he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord. So this is the same fire that's the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And if, and if I stopped right there, I could, I could interpret this in such a way that they don't die. I just want to pause there and, and point that out, right? They can be consumed by a fire that purifies them. And they died before the Lord. The sentence ends. Now they can be purified and then die, right? Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, through those who are near me, I will show myself holy, and before all the people, I will be glorified. So what's going on here? There are so many interpretations, and this is how it goes. You know, so one of the things that shows up is right after this, I mean, right after this, we get that priests shouldn't drink. And so that gives some sort of implication that maybe they were drinking. Now, in a Latter-day context, Latter-day Saint context, no one's going to be drinking. And so this is, even though it might be what's going on here, maybe it's not personally applicable, but let's think about how it can be. So what is the point of not drinking when you're performing priestly duties or when you're praying? Because this can apply when you're praying too. And again, for a Latter-day Saint audience, you don't have to be drinking. You just have to understand what the problem is with drinking. And that is that you're not actually present to your lack and your desire is not in effect in the sense of, so there's this idea of what really, what, how really God pulls us toward him is through our own lack. You know, we sense that we're missing something, that something that we're missing is God. And as a matter of fact, I picked up a re- uh, recently a book on, uh, I don't remember the title of it, but it's dealing with this idea that, you know, some people want to dismiss religion nowadays and say, this is just, you know, silly superstitions and outdated And, you know, there's no use for that. And what this author wants to say is that we can't necessarily, and this is in my own words, I'm paraphrasing, we can't necessarily find God, but we can't help but seek for him. Do you see what I mean? That there's something in us that is seeking out something that we we call divine, something transcendent, something that we're missing, something that's greater than us. And so you're not really fully present to that in your prayers and in your and in your um, devotions or priestly duties, as the case may be, as in these, uh, these two sons of Aaron, if you are, in any sense, you don't have your wits about you, right? You don't have to be intoxicated for this to be true. Mindfulness, thank you. That's really the perfect way to put it, if you're not mindful. So if you're just going through the motions. So another interpretation is, really deals with just going through the motions. There's this this idea, you know, t- sometimes we talk about people who have lost it, you know, that they've gone off the deep end. Well, there's another way of, of you know, being just so obsessed with normalcy that you go off the shallow end, 
Okay, so superficial. Here's the presence of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, again, you're going through the motion. So here the presence of God is there in fire. And these guys are going to bring fire from home and just go through the motions of what they do every other day. And they're just missing the point, right? The point, there's already fire there. This is the divine presence. And they're just oblivious to it. And so it's like they're performing this exoteric practice that's supposed to be this, that is a necessary, right? The outer shell. But the point of the outer shell is to contain the inner kernel. And that inner kernel is the divine presence and it is already there and they're completely oblivious to it. And so those are just a, a couple of interpretations that come out that I think are, are really insightful and, and something for, give us something to think about in terms of our own devotion, our own religious practice. Absolutely. That's good. That's something that, you know, we, we didn't, I don't know if we completely skipped over it when we did Leviticus, but we, we definitely didn't I think we did, uh, treat it very much at all. And uh, so it was good, some good insight to have. Was there anything else with chapter three or chapter four? There's something that I wanted to bring up in chapter seven. I don't have anything in, in, in those chapters you asked me about, but in chapter seven, when Moses, this is verse 89, when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he would hear the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant from between the two cherubim, thus it spoke to him. Now, this isn't new. We read this before. There are a couple things that stand out here, though, that, that we haven't brought out before. Well, one is in this context. One is this verse has nothing to do with what comes before it. It looks like somebody just tacked it on to the end of the chapter. The only thing it has to do with what comes before it is that it's is the place where it's happening. But it just seems like this afterthought. The other thing, though, to notice is that that such a throne for a deity, as as is described here, and as we've described in the in past episodes, is is known from Canaanite iconography. We can actually see depictions of this in Canaanite iconography. So, again, you have this instance of of uh, Israelite religion looking a lot like their neighbors, even though in in Leviticus we made a big deal out of everything supposed to be different. Right, a lot of things are different, but some things are the same. I guess one way you could take that is you could say, well, the Canaanites borrowed it from the Israelites, right? You could, you could say that. We do see it in, again in Canaanite iconography. So there is again, there's this idea of distinguishing themselves from from their neighbors. But I think again, especially when it comes to this idea of divine violence, this purported divine violence, this is how gods were seen in that time and place, right? In their context. This is how they thought of what was going on. And by the way, remember, when when it comes to what's going on, God is doing everything. This is something that we as moderns, this is not how we think anymore, right? This is what's going on. I've mentioned this before in, in a previous episode, the idea of the Iliad. If you've read the Iliad, every time someone throws a spear, if that spear hits its mark, it's not the, the spearsman who made it happen. It's a God who made it happen. And if it didn't hit its mark, it's because the intended victim of the spear throw uh, had another God backing him up and saved him. And so when you watch the movie Troy, what's conspicuously absent are the gods. No gods anywhere in sight. And that's just not how the story goes. Well, I mean, you know, we talked about how one of the main themes here in the book of Numbers is, is that of death. And throughout the book, pretty much, I mean, all the death that's happening in the book is either caused by or justified 
by God. All the death. In fact, we get to a point where they go out to battle, and when they come back from battle, it says none of the Israelites died, right? None of them died, just their enemies died. And so you get this sense that, okay, every single person that's dying in this book, God wants it to be that way. And uh, th- this this right should be should be a a tipping of the hand should be a um, a sign to us that hey there's something else going on in this story than just recounting what happened right there's something more that it's trying to present to us and it's the idea that yes God is in control of everything and when we when we talk about this idea. Uh, that's presented of of divine violence. There's so many different layers at which we could say this is uh, this mentality is present. You could start with well the the people that actually put this all down and it redacted you know the redactors that put all these stories together. They're going to present it in a way that they understand it, and then you can go back from there to the people that originally told these stories and pass them through their generations, they are going to be the ones that conceived of God this way and presented this story this way. Or you could go all the way back to the actual people that experienced this and say, well, the the way they experienced it was this way. And so at any point along the line, you could say that the the God that's being presented here is the God that the people understand him to be. And as we read it, we can understand from it, you know, not just the God that they understood it to be, but see at times the God that we know or the God that you individually know. And we, we see this, there's, there's some very fascinating points throughout this book where we're going to see things like that happen. Uh, as, as one person I've heard put it, you know, God kind of shining through the cracks, so to speak. And you see these moments of, hey, that's, there's something different going on there than than the God in this chapter, right? Like what what's the disconnect here? And and so there's some some very fascinating moments of that. Isn't there a line from uh Leonard Cohen that says that the the cracks let the light in? Yeah. Yeah, that must have been what it was from. Yeah. There's a crack in everything, he said. That's how the light gets in. Um, let's see. Chapter nine, Christopher, what did you have to say with chapter nine? So one of these examples, again, that, you know, the fire that's described here in chapter, you know, chapter nine, verses 15 through 16, uh, the fire in the cloud, this is going back again to what I was saying earlier about the the divine presence, right? It's associated with the, the quote unquote glory of the Lord. And those kind of um, that kind of description of the glory uh, cloud as this glowing aura or like some kind of radiance is a lot like that of Mesopotamian gods in this ancient Near Eastern context. Well, I, I thought it was interesting how they talk about so you know there's there's the tabernacle where they're performing the sacrifices, and so that ostensibly is where the fire is, right? And then the smoke coming up from that is the sort of the symbol or or representation of God's presence. So we have the, you know, the cloud by day, pillar by night concept here. And when the cloud is just stationary, when it rests there, then the people are supposed to just stay. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, that means the wind's not blowing, 
right? So like when the wind's not blowing, but then as soon as the wind's blowing, you know, whatever direction the wind's blowing, that's going to take the smoke and that's where you go. And so uh, maybe that's why they spend 40 years wandering. <laughs> they're for just a following trip. the wind patterns, right? <laughs> Driven with the, by the wind and tossed, right? So that's what happens, right? In, in uh, chapter 10, verse 11, right? Chapter 10, verse 11, we get that they've been in one place, right? And now they're going to move because the cloud that's this divine presence above the tabernacle moves and then whenever it stops they stop and the tabernacle gets you know the encampment happens in that place this is the place right and so they're moving from the wilderness of sinai so to give a little bit more of an overview ben we have you know that they start off here in sinai where we knew they were from uh, from exodus and then they move to the wilderness of paran and then you have some rebellion, you know, rebellions you have. Well, actually, you have spies that explore the promised land. Then there's a rebellion. Then trouble, right? This this catastrophe that you mentioned, Ben. Then you have another rebellion. Then, you know, you, oh, and of course, people complaining the whole time. Why did you, this has been going on since they, since Exodus, right? Why did you bring us out of Egypt? You know, we were better off there. The same people who were saying that, you know, they were crying out to God because they were oppressed in Egypt. And then, of course, you have the, you mentioned the the bronze snake. And then they move again to the plains of Moab. And then we have this episode with Balaam and the king of Moab. And then comes the new sentence. And then they finally go and they're just across. Moab is just across the Jordan from Canaan. Yeah. So then they're ready to go into the land there. So we're at the first time that they pick up and move. We're moving now from Sinai to the wilderness of Paran. Yeah, this is the the first journey into the wilderness, so to speak, in in this narrative. And immediately, you know, this, this is chapter 11, immediately the people start complaining. Um, this is the, burp, the murmuring. That's going on. And so there's uh, this, you know, discussion always back and forth between Moses and the people, the people complaining to him and, and weeping. And, and, and then we have a discussion between Moses and God where, where Moses, um, you know, sort of presents this metaphor as of, of God as a mother who has birthed these people. And then Moses is, the nurse that is to care for them and, and guide them through the wilderness. And, and Moses is saying, you know, he doesn't feel capable of, of doing this. You know, this is, there's multiple times that Moses has, has come out with this. And way back at the beginning when Moses was, was called and God says, Hey, go and, and tell the people, Moses says, Hey, I, I can't do it. I can barely talk. Um, and so I, I'm not really capable of doing this. So, you know, Moses has never really been, uh, very confident in his in his own abilities, and sure enough, here you know he's telling the Lord, I I'm not capable of carrying all these people and and doing everything that I'm supposed to do. Um, so then we get this moment where the Lord tells him to gather seventy elders that would support him. This is reminiscent of and possibly just another another a retelling, um, or maybe this is a separate instance of the Jethro story, right? Where Jethro says, hey, the thing you're doing isn't good. You're going to waste away. So you need to get uh, a bunch of people 
and they're going to help you organize and and you know create this hierarchy of people that are, are going to judge the people and and help them resolve their their things. So this is kind of uh, either you know a reprise of that um, or or just a reorganization of the thing. You know, Ben. Not only does he feel like he's not capable, but he also he it seems like he's asking. Why am I responsible, right? He says in verse 12, did I conceive all these people? Yeah. Did I give birth to them? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a sucking child to the land. (laughs) Yeah, to the land that you promised on oath to their ancestors. Why do I have to do this? I'm not able to carry all these people, he goes on in verse 14, alone, for they're too heavy for me. If this is the way you're going to treat me, put me to death at once. If I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my misery. And so then the people complain that they want meat, right? And then <laughs> I love the, the way you, t- you talked about this uh, pre-show, Ben. So you want meat? I'll give you meat. Yeah, the imagery here is just so <laughs> Until so it comes striking. out of your nostrils. Yeah, yeah, here you go. It becomes loathsome to you. Keeps stuffing it in their face, right? Until it's, it's coming out of their nostrils. It's, it's, uh, it's an interesting... <laughs> you know, comical almost. If it if it weren't so like dark and sinister, right? It would be comical in the way that this is is presented um of how the people are complaining about it. And the Lord's like, oh yeah, I'll I'll help you out. But then he does it in a in a a very like vengeful, uh sadistic way, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then in verse 33, but while the meat was still between their teeth Before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. I mean, we we talked about this pre-show, how uh, it reminded us of Pinocchio, right? The story of Pinocchio. Where they go to the island, and they're they're all so um, consumed with it that they all turn into donkeys. You know, the the idea is that they're jackasses, right? So. Uh, right. it's kind of, you know, I don't know why necessarily, but it's kind of what's going on here, right? That the, the people's appetite is not sated by the manna that the Lord has given them miraculously, right? They're, they're just never satisfied. And so the Lord's like, okay, you're not satisfied. Here's more. And, you know, he just stuffs it. Um, you want more and, and stuffs it in their mouth, right? What about Willy Wonka? Yeah, That's yeah. That's another example, right? Yeah, there you go. And Charlie and the uh, Chocolate Factory, right? Yeah, yeah. Same scenario. Or Matilda and the, the chocolate cake, the boy that eats the chocolate cake, kind of that idea. Right. <laughs> so, um, I, I, you know, we chuckle at this because uh, I should explain our chuckling if, if people don't get it. The chuckling here is that we don't believe this is who God is. We don't believe God does this sort of thing. And so um, we are a little bit chuckling at the, at the imagery, thinking of, okay, what what is it that a person does to conceive, or how, how is it that a person conceives of a God that could, that could act this way towards them, and then afterwards still have like a loving, trustful relationship with this God? And I don't, I don't know that I have an answer for that. And so like, to me, it is kind of a comical uh, representation, a caricature of, of God, rather than like a true um, experience that somebody who, who isn't in a meaningful relationship with God would have, right? Yeah. So what do you make of it, Ben? 
So uh, what do I make of like what really happened or <laughs> what is it that trying to right, tell us? What do you us? make of this story? What, what, what do you think it's trying to tell us? So I, I think that there, there is something here to be said about our, our appetites as humans, right? And, you know, if we, if we kind of um, set aside this idea that, that God is the one that is sadistically doing all of these things to them, there is something about our, our own uh, appetites as, as humans that are somehow never satisfied, Right, like so, you're saying we're masochists. Yeah, in a sense, it's not that God is a, a sadist, yeah. right? I mean, we yeah. see this in our society today with the just the, the overabundance that we have. That that there does seem to be this this sense of people, and you know, can see it. I think, and I've seen it in myself that you're just never satisfied um, with what's given, and and that 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 sense of just never being truly grateful and satisfied with what you have leads to destruction, right? Leads to the loss of what you were, you took for granted. Yeah. It's a matter of perspective, you know, and we shouldn't just think of food that we consume. It's consumerism in general. And it's not like I haven't fallen, you know, uh, prey to this, but I do remember a time I remember sitting with my wife, I think it was Christmas time. We had the Christmas tree and we're just sitting there in the living room and we just kind of looked at each other and I I said what we were thinking, you know, out loud. I said, man, we are filthy, stinking rich because, not because we had so much, but because we didn't want what we didn't have. We just had this moment. Again, it's not like I've always felt this way, but in that moment, we felt completely satisfied. And so that's that's an experience of what it would be like not to be always wanting more. We had that moment of just satisfaction and and that's and, th- and that includes a sense of gratitude right and so maybe a way to cultivate that is through gratitude right by expressing gratitude for what we do have and that turns the focus from the lack to what we do have and and we can be grateful for what we have so we have this sort of incorporated into our culture in the the practice holiday of Thanksgiving, right? That's the idea behind this is that we're supposed to take this time to, to realize all of the things that we are grateful for, not take them for granted. And we have this also within our Latter-day Saint culture is, is the idea behind fasting um, that, you know, at least once a month we, we go through a fast time and then that is supposed to be uh help the proceeds from that would be going to helping those who are less fortunate or don't have enough. Those who truly lack. To cultivate that idea. Yeah. Those who truly lack supposed to cultivate that idea of, of a gratitude of a mindfulness of a presence of the, the ever providence of God in our lives. Um, and not, you know, again, not taking these things for, for granted. But then look what we do in America the day after Thanksgiving. Now it's Black Friday. Yeah, there you go. And we just lose the plot. Yeah. And you know, I, I'm not, uh, I'm taking a page from, from my friend Joshua Fields Milburn, you know, of the minimalists. It, it's not, I'm not saying anything against consuming, you know, a consumerism in general, but I'm talking about conspicuous consumption. I'm talking about compulsory consumption. Well, it's the, it's, it's what we're talking about with, with the, the sons of, 
of Aaron before, right? It's the idea that this becomes a casual thing. We're not we're not mindful about what's really going on and and careful about what is what is truly holy and what is truly provided by God as opposed to that which is is casual or or mundane. Um so so there you go folks. All of that from Numbers <laughs> chapter 11. <laughs> Well, we're not, you know, I don't know that we're done with chapter 11. I mean, there's this part in here, right, where these these guys come and they are the, the 70 elders and and Moses, um, does he put his hands on them? Something happens where basically the idea is that the authority, a bit of the authority or spirit of Moses passes to these men and then they start prophesying and all these other people are coming up and they're like, hey, Hey, these people are are doing your job, Moses. They're they're doing this prophesying and stuff. You should go tell them to stop. They shouldn't be doing this. Only you're supposed to be doing this. And and Moses is like, "Hey guys, like I don't I don't know what you're worried about. This is actually the way it's supposed to be." He says, um, "Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them." In other words, like Amen. it was never meant to only be me. Like. It was supposed to be everybody. Like it was never meant to only, you know, be confined to just a few people. If if everybody could have this experience, that's the idea. So yeah, there's one other thing I wanted to bring out in chapter eleven, Ben. That's just this, in you know, the first few verses. This is the first time in Numbers. Not that it hasn't happened before in Exodus. This is the first time that the people complain in numbers. Yes. Just to keep track of where we are here. Yeah. So here's yeah, this and they're, they're going to the wilderness, and here's the yeah, every time they complain, they're they're punished, right? That we definitely see that. Um oh, so chapter 12. Here we go, chapter 12. We have this statement that you uh had a little bit of commentary on about Moses' humility, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was this verse, so traditionally. It was thought that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, right? The the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Torah, right? So the problem is that it says here, right here in verse 3 of chapter 12, in the NRSV translation, now then man Moses was very humble. What does the KJV say? I think it says meek. Meek. So he's very humble. I like humble here for illustrative purposes. More so... More so than anyone else on the face of the earth. So here's the thing. If Moses is humble, why is he writing here that he's humble? And so this was a problematic for people. This was People have stumbled over this verse for a long time. Now we, we don't uh, believe anymore that these books were written by uh, Moses himself. As a matter of fact, scholars have found many evidences for multiple authors. And, and we've actually pointed that out along the way. And we'll probably continue to see that. We'll see. In fact, there's in this week's reading, well, in numbers, because this week's reading is is more than just, I mean, uh, we're covering more than this week's reading. There's an example where not only do do the ancients think that whatever happens, God made that happen. So if something bad happens after you did something, that must be a punishment for what you did. But they actually bring together, the, the, the redactors of these writings bring together two different stories so that it looks like that the one is the result of the other. And that'll that'll probably come up here later. So here we arrive at chapter 13. This is the uh what's you know some have referred to as the catastrophe 
This is the moment when all of the hopes and dreams of the people come crashing down. Ben, before you, so before you go into chapter 13, there's one more thing I wanted to bring out from chapter 12, and that's in verse 8, because we read in, in verse 8 that Moses is face-to-face with God, right? Oh, yes. And so I just want to point out we shouldn't take that literally because the literal translation of this verse is actually mouth-to-mouth. We'll get later on eye-to-eye. And so in English, you may see face-to-face in both cases, for example, in the NRSV. But but the Hebrew behind this verse, 12.8, is going to be mouth-to-mouth, and then later on we'll get eye-to-eye. And so, and who knows, maybe somewhere it says face-to-face, but I think we just, we take these things sometimes too literally. What does mouth-to-mouth mean? Now, now eye-to-eye does sound a lot like face-to-face, right? I'm okay with that. But mouth-to-mouth, there may be something more to this. So one of the things that Aviva Zornberg brings out about, um, you know, in her book, Bewilderments, about these, you know, this book, the book of Numbers, or in the wilderness, right, this this idea of being in the wilderness, is is that in it's a really profound thing that she says because there are two ways as human beings that we make connections. One is through our you know our reproductive organs. This is a way that we connect with each other in fruitful ways, right? And this is actually from Genesis one, right? From from the beginning. Um, I shouldn't say Genesis one, but from the beginning, be fruitful and multiply. And that's how that happens. Another way that we connect, and in fact, the only other way, right? This this is through, it's going to be through that way, through touch, or it's going to be through our mouth, through speaking. Hopefully, again, in productive ways, or in, in yeah, in productive ways, in fruitful ways. And so here you have Moses and God mouth to mouth in that way. So this is a communication. But you see, we don't have to see them face to face for this to happen. We just have to have that they're talking to each other. So in 13, this is the, the catastrophe. This well, is, now the spies go out, right? Yeah. This is the point at which all of the hopes and dreams, the promises that they've been made come crashing down around them. And yes, they've been complaining up until this point, but um, you know, this is where it really kind of uh, hits the fan, so to speak. <laughs> They're, so they're they're spies from each of the tribes, right? Yeah, they're 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 sent. There's twelve sent out, right? One from each of the tribes. There's something there's something we didn't bring out earlier, Ben, and that is that the because the Levites were set apart, as you mentioned earlier, that didn't leave us with twelve, right? That left us with eleven. Correct. And so Joseph is divided into Ephraim and Manasseh. Right. And so now we have twelve again, and now we're gonna send out one from each tribe. To spy out the land. Yeah, and this becomes important when we talk about the uh, this projection into the past of this political situation between the tribe of Judah and Ephraim. So we'll get to that in in just a minute. But there's a there's an interesting midrash on this that talks about how um, there there was this little conversation going on between God and Moses where. Um, Moses sort of proposes that they should should send spies, or it's proposed that they should send spies. And the Lord doesn't necessarily think this is a good idea. Um, you know, it's not what he would have intended to happen, 
because he knows how the people are. But that's just what they decided to do. And so the Lord says, do what you think is best. Um, and, and so there's, there's an interpretation of the, the words that are used here when it says the Lord said to Moses, send men to spy out the land. It's, it's more send if you think it's best men to spy out the land of Canaan. And, you know, without sort of the, the insight of, of the scholars in the Midrash, I, I wouldn't have ever, there's, there's no way I could have seen something like that because there's some nuance to the Hebrew uh, vocabulary and grammar here that brings out this, this idea that it wasn't necessarily the Lord's idea to send the spies. It was the people's idea to send the spies to the land. Well, and that's another thing, right? First, we have that whatever's happening, God is making it happen. Yes. And then we have that whatever we want to happen, God is making it happen. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah, there's it's that both too. And. Yeah. Oh, this is yeah. what I wanted and to so, say. <laughs> and by the way, for, for the listener who doesn't know, Midrash just means commentary. This is this is early. This is ancient commentary. And the earliest Midrashim, plural for Midrash, Midrashim, come from the second century AD. And so there's a there's a long tradition. Yeah, it's a tradition. It, we use commentary. the word to to connote the the tradition of this commentary um, of rabbinical commentary throughout history that um, uh, you know sort of uh, multiplies into this library of of commentary that becomes uh, pseudo authoritative. Yeah, yeah, it becomes a text that that becomes attached to the the Torah itself. And it's a rich tradition. It's a very rich tradition. Oh, yeah. We've availed ourselves of it and will continue to do so uh, through teachers like Aviva Zornberg, for example. Yeah. So the the 12 spies are sent. Uh, 10 of them come back uh, bringing what they call what are called evil reports. And two of them come back and give good reports. And, um, you know, one of the things Zornberg uh, points out is that the the these two that come back there there's Caleb of the tribe of Judah and Joshua of the tribe of Ephraim um there's two different sources here and one of the sources talks about how it's Caleb that comes back and brings the good report and the other the other source talks about how it's Joshua that comes back and gives the good report and then here in our book of numbers that we have before us both of these accounts have been woven together so it looks like they both are coming back and so what what is so fascinating about this that uh, Zornberg didn't specifically bring this out, but I I picked up on it because of our earlier discussion when we were talking about the story of Joseph, why this was significant, that you would have two sources are woven together here, but originally were two sources, one talking about Caleb and one talking about Joshua. And that is because later when we get to the split kingdom, where you have the kingdom of Judah and then the the northern kingdom, um, the, the claim to... The, the rightful kingship is uh, is sort of positioned politically uh, among the Jews that it's Judah, and then among the northern kingdom that it's Ephraim, right, Jeroboam. And so we have written back into a lot of these traditions and texts a lot of uh, ways of telling the story that legitimize these different claims. And so one of the ways that this is done is in this story where it's Caleb and Joshua of Judah and Ephraim. They are the ones that see the true goodness and potential of the land, whereas the other tribes, they just didn't really get it. But it's it's Judah and Ephraim or Caleb and, and uh, Joshua, they're the ones that really understand 
what the the potential of the land is that that God has given to them. Yeah, and what they say, we didn't really bring that out, is, you know, so 10 out of 12 come back and say, there's just no way that we can conquer this land. It's just, there. It's this is a land that eats people up. And the other two say, no, God will, we can do this with God, right? And so that's that's the difference. And so, and then it's funny how um, how the stories that the you know that the, those who brought back a negative report, it's like it's like one of these fishing stories, right? You, do you want to talk about that, Ben? How it's like a fishing story? Oh yeah. So you know you can see the progression in the story here. First, it talks about that they saw the descendants of Anak there. So the the idea is is that oh they saw descendants of of some giants. And uh, Zornberg gets into this a little bit that there, there's you know different uh, different names for for the giants and and anyway they see the descendants of of the of the uh, Anak there is what they say. Well, you can the Anakites, yeah, Anakites. You can see how in the story this would happen, right? You know, they go and they see these people. Oh man, they saw some guys that were really big, and then as they're traveling back, they're both telling each other, oh, I saw this really big guy and I saw this really big guy. And the stories kind of feed off of each other until, you know, by the time they get back to the camp, not only are these people big that they saw, but they're giants. And then when they tell the story again, oh, not only are they descendants of Anak, they are, they come from the Nephilim, right? These these are the ancient giants that are mentioned at the time of Noah. And, and not only that, but we are gra- we were grasshoppers to them okay these guys are enormous they're huge right so the story just like keeps getting you know bigger and bigger as it goes along uh, more and more exaggerated until they get, they use that that metaphor of the the, the grasshoppers uh you know, zornberg has some super interesting commentary uh on this this point here that uh that I'll read uh unless you had something else first you wanted to comment on this christopher no, I just, well, I was just going to say how the Nephilim, right? That these are the ones, well, I mean, it's kind of disputed, right? But it's back in Genesis 6, 4, we read, the Nephilim were in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bore children to them, the same were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. And so that's from the JPS translation. So these Nephilim then, uh, th- these people that they see are going to be associated with those people back in Genesis. I mean, this is just one of these, like I said, one of these fishing stories where these people just get bigger and bigger and bigger until the fish you caught was this big. Yeah. I'm, I'm stretching out my arms here. <laughs> so I want to read something from uh, Zornberg's book, Bewilderments, from the the preface here. And I'm hoping this kind of gives people an idea of of her writing style and the the depth to which she goes in in describing or or analyzing these stories. So, um she says the darkest moment in this journey may be when Israel begins to doubt herself, her own capacity for love. The various expostulations of the people find their center in the ephes, that is zero moment of the spies when all meaning is annihilated. After that, and after the proliferating fantasy of the giants, which generates a grasshopper sense of self, there is the terrible night of weeping, 
in which a wordless voice rises up from the camp, modulating to weeping and then to the utterance of a Job-like wish to be already dead. If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or in this wilderness, if only we had died. A poignant midrash describes this moment of despair. Yatsalibam, their hearts literally left them. Their hearts failed them. In the in this crisis of the history of Yetziat Mitzrayim, leaving from Egypt, they experience also this loss, this separation between their hearts and themselves. One elaboration, they lose confidence in the real nature of their hearts. Perhaps deep in their hearts, they will never love the land. Therefore, at precisely this crisis of self-doubt, God commands the wine libation, which signifies courage, to move them to a profound dialogue with their own despair. Such a depth of experience breeds its own new language of hatred and love. Despair declares itself in all the cries and laments of death wishfulness of the people. Their words are suffused with the unspeakable pain that inhabits them, and yet precisely this intensity of self-expression may connect them to a faith that brings them again to life. Beyond what can be said or known, there is an opening to the infinite. The issue is the possibility of love. In the absence of certainty about God's love, can the human heart really love? God, the land, others, itself? At heart, the issue about God is not about his power to bring them into the land, but about his love, his desire to bring them into full being. On this question, the mission of the spies collapses. Hatred, and not love, declares itself. Projected onto God, aggression rages. Disruptions, bewilderments erode the received formulas. If faith is to become real, catastrophe must be acknowledged and fully spoken. As it turns out, it is only when hatred is acknowledged that the language of love begins to emerge. In Deuteronomy, it is only after Moses has spoken to the people that their core fantasy of God's hatred, or in Rashi's devastating reading, that their own projected hatred of God, that he can begin to utter words like love, desire, and delight. Okay, so there's a lot to chew on in her uh, quote here. I think uh, one of the, the key points to bring out here is that this is a moment where the people turn, as she says, from the possibility of love towards that of hatred. And that's what ends up happening is their hatred, uh, because of their, their moment of, of catastrophe, um, rather than turning to love at that moment, turning to hatred, that becomes projected onto God. And so then they they move into a space in which their perception of God is that of of hatred, not just for themselves, but also for the other, right? The people that are inhabiting the land. And then that moment of hatred then becomes projected on Moses and and hatred of of existence. Like, why did you bring us out here? It'd be better if we just died, right? And so this sort of compounds the whole the whole nihilism of the moment. Um, such that uh, they, you know, there, there's the mourning and the, and the complaining, and then that becomes realized in the text, literally. But we we can look at this metaphorically, right? This 
this projected hatred, this becomes realized within their own destruction. Um, we get this moment later where the, the earth, right, opens up and swallows this these people into it. This becomes this fulfillment of this rejection of uh, the ability to love and accept the land. Rather, they they talk about how the land eats up the people. Well, then li- literally later the land you know swallows them up it, as they are in rebellion. So, yeah, you know, there's something that stood out to me in all of that, and there's so much there that you, you said something about the the libation, and it reminded me again of. Nadab and Avihu. And if I'm mispronouncing their names, I learned them from reading. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we think of it in, in, in our house. I remember the day my girls came to me, they were reading Agatha Christie. And there's a series uh, of novels by Agatha Christie where what they came to me and said was, Dad, what is M. Poirot? That's what they said. What is M. Poirot? And I just thought, M. Poirot. What is Monsieur Poirot. Poirot. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They learned it from reading. So, you know, it's interesting because back to the the priests, you know, the priestly duty, they were actually, you can read in Proverbs 31.6, give alcohol to one who has lost and wine to the bitter of spirit. Let him drink and forget his destitution. And it was actually a part of their experience in mourning to drink alcohol. And so, but then again, does that mix with their priestly duties in in the other context, right? That's the question. So the, I just keep going back to that story. I think there's there's just depths to plumb in all of these stories. And again, uh, Aviva Zornberg just gives us a taste of that. Thanks for sharing that, Ben. Yeah. So we talked about how this kind of casts them into this this place of despair. Um, chapter 14 starts off with them raising a loud cry and and weeping all the night. They say, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become booty. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us choose a captain, go back to Egypt. And it's this is really different, Ben, from, again, back to Nadav and Abihu. Like right before that happened, again, Leviticus 9, where there's this rejoicing, there's this this song that's sung uh-huh. that it's it's this it's a very big deal. It's it's like the maybe even bigger than than the song of victory that we that we talked about at the end of um of Exodus, right? So this is such an important moment of the, of 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 this again, the spirit of God is present, or the presence of God is there, right? In this fire, and they're singing and they're rejoicing, and there's this this great joy. And now look, now it's just the opposite, right? I mean, we're, we've come to the other end of the spectrum here, and this is from the you know after they go in and look at this place where this is the first time that it shows up, and this is in thirteen twenty seven, chapter thirteen, verse twenty seven that they speak of it as a land that flows with milk and honey. This is the first time this shows up in Numbers. It's a well-known phrase. And later on, by the way, they're going to say that about Egypt. They're going to say, fantasizing. We, we want to go back to Egypt where there's actual milk and honey, right? Yeah. I guess it's more romanticizing than it is fantasizing. Yeah. Because you know, the, the idea is they have this memory of Egypt and and it's like, okay, but you know, if you go back in Exodus, the the deep memory is that they cried out, right? That they were under such this burden. But Yeah, but now it becomes the devil that you know. Yeah. Right? 
and it's different from what are we looking at here in Canaan. This just looks, again, for 10 out of 12 of them, this just can't be done. So yeah, we have these these competing narratives of this land, right? The report from the 10 and the report from the 2, and then this mourning that goes on. And and what I what this really brought to mind for me was 1st Nephi chapter 17. Okay? So if you guys are present here with your your uh, Book of Mormon narrative, we have Lehi and his family that leave Jerusalem and go out into the desert. And and Nephi is the one narrating this whole thing, and he he's constantly bringing up you know this is ostensibly around 600 BC, so he's constantly bringing up the narrative of of Moses and the children of Israel, you know, coming out of Egypt. This is their foundational narrative as well. So he's he's reiterating that, and they're traveling in the wilderness and. He is experiencing a lot of the same things, right, that the children of Israel would have experienced in, in that area. So here's Nephi's, uh, a couple verses of his account. He says, And so great were the blessings of the Lord upon us, that while we did live upon raw meat in the wilderness, our women did give plenty of suck for their children, and were strong, yea, even like unto the men, and they began to bear their journeyings without murmurings. And thus we see that the commandments of God must be fulfilled. And if it so be that the children of men keep the commandments of God, he doth nourish them and strengthen them and provide means whereby they can accomplish the thing which he has commanded them. Wherefore, he did provide means for us while we did sojourn in the wilderness. How about that? Later in this chapter, he uh, he gets into a discussion, uh, an argument with his brothers and he, uh, Laman and Lamuel. And so Nephi here is kind of playing the role of of uh, Caleb and and Joshua, and then Laman and Lemuel are kind of you know the murmuring side of this. So here we get here's the here's the account of Laman and Lemuel about the same journeying, right? So Laman and Lemuel they say to Nephi, "Thou art like unto our father, led away by the foolish imaginations of his heart." Right? Okay. So this is this is talking about Moses. I mean. It's talking about Lehi, right? But this is parallel to how the people feel about Moses in in Numbers. Uh, Yea, he hath led us out of the land of Jerusalem, and we have wandered in the wilderness for these many years, and our women have toiled, being big with child, and they have borne children in the wilderness and suffered all things, save it were death. And it would have been better that they had died before they came out of Jerusalem than to have suffered these afflictions. Behold, these many years we have suffered in the wilderness, which time we might have enjoyed our possessions in the land of our inheritance. Yea, we might have been happy. So yeah, yeah, this can sound like Moses at points too, right? Where he says, God, just have me die instead of having to go through all of this. Um, but here it's also echoing the people that, that say, hey, you brought us out here to die. Um, what happens later in this conversation is, is Nephi then recounts the, the exodus and the journey in the wilderness back to his brothers. And what he is doing is he's using this, you know, this narrative and this, this history of them, this sacred history, I should say, um, in order to, to counter their murmurings. So it, it just parallels exactly, you know, with, with what we're talking about here in, in, in the book of Numbers. And uh, I think brings out uh, these points within that Latter-day Saint context, you know, whenever we, we talk about the Book of Mormon narrative. So, Isn't that interesting? 
the parallels really are uncanny. You know, the, the, this is a main point of the narrative of the Book of Mormon is to remind us of the main narrative in all of Scripture for Christians, for Muslims, and for Jews, which is the Exodus. Right? This is the, 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 that God delivers his people from bondage. This is the main narrative in all of Scripture. Yeah, who who said this is like the only thing that happens in the Bible? <laughs> you know, everything else oh, is yeah. basically commentary on the Exodus. That's right. There there was someone who said that. This is the only thing that happens in the Bible is the Exodus. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't remember who that was. So then we get this moment of another argument between God and Moses, right? It's not exactly an argument, but it's this discussion. And it's basically the same discussion that happened back at Sinai when they made the golden calf. And God says, that's it. I'm done with this people. They don't get it. Um, I'm I'm done with them. I'm going to take you, Moses, and we're going to make a whole new nation of people. And we're just going to get rid of these people. Can I say something about the golden calf? Yeah, too? yeah. You know, so again, back to Nadab and Abihu, right? The, the one narrative in the whole book of Leviticus that we didn't cover, and now I can't stop talking about <laughs> it. Because it just keeps coming up for me. So remember, these are the sons of Aaron. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai and the people were impatient and they wanted things to get back to normal, remember how I talked about their sort of sense of normalcy, the going off the shallow end, this idea of being too obsessed with the normal? I mean, you have, you have the presence of God. You have the divine presence. And, and, and maybe it's in, in, it's in this fire, right? Maybe this isn't what you expected or the way that you think it's supposed to be. And the problem with all our theologies and all of our systems of thought is that God doesn't actually fit into them, right? You can't actually fit God into a box, not even a pine box, right? Because if you put God in, in a body, then he fits in a pine box. So these are the sons of Aaron. When the people became impatient because Moses wasn't coming around and things weren't, you know, they were getting antsy and they wanted things to go back to normal. They wanted this uh, calf to go before them, this idol. He was the one who built it. Now, what are these guys doing? His sons. Same thing. You have this, this um, again, this, this drive, this impetus toward the, the norm, toward the, the, the mundane, the everyday, the banal, even in the, in the divine presence, right? Even as that's what's happening, just like what was happening on Mount Sinai for Moses. And so there's a connection there between the father and the sons, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, you know. Sorry, there's one. There's one other thing before you move on, Ben. Did you want to comment on that? Because there's, I wanted to go back here to a verse comparing it to what you read from, from the Book of Mormon. Well, I was going to go next to Moses's discussion with God, but yeah. So there's this verse here in Numbers 14 that really compares to what you were reading from the Book of Mormon, right? Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become booty. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And so they actually organize a rebellion and they want to appoint a captain. Now it becomes political. This is political, right? We're going to have a new leader and he's going to take us back to Egypt. This is where they really, st and they actually rebel against God, not just Moses. There's Have we passed the point where Moses' uh, sister and uh is is rebelling is his, his sister and I don't think so yet. No, we're not we're not okay. to that okay. point yet. Yeah. So I mean, we just have multiple instances of of people rebelling against Moses, and at some point they rebel against God. 
maybe I got ahead of myself there. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it happens a bunch of times, so it's hard to know sometimes where you are. Wait, which which point is this? which one is this? So, um, where's my outline? Yeah, <laughs> Moses at this point has the discussion with the Lord, and there's there's a point at which it seems like Moses is is persuading the Lord, you know, talking him off of the ledge here, uh, talking him down. There's definitely different ways to take this, but uh, the way that I think makes the most sense is that it's not Moses actually talking the Lord down. It's Moses talking himself down, right? Because Moses at this point is super upset with the people. And it's almost like he's, there's this projecting going on that, that Zornberg talked about, right? That Moses is projecting on the Lord this desire that, you know, maybe we just do away with all the people and I just go off and find a new group of people. And and see if we can get them going again, right? And and it's this and so we have this conversation between Moses and God, but I can kind of see it as a conversation between Moses and himself, uh, where he 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 then kind of comes back and he says, No, you know what? The Lord has made promises to this people, and he has already brought them out of Egypt and redeemed them. And if I give up on them, then I'm I'm giving up on that promise. And so even though it's sort of presented here as it's the Lord and Moses, it actually fits so much better to say that it's it's Moses struggling with himself, right? And his own ego um, and and his own perception of the people. And and this actually fits with what happens later uh, in the story, in the narrative, when we get to things about how uh, Moses, you know, getting water for the people and stuff like that. Yeah, so at this point, this is when we get that the Lord says, because, so Moses says, hey, you know, please, you've got to keep your covenant with Abraham. And the Lord says, okay, fine, but verse 35, I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely I will do thus to all this wicked congregation gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. By which he means, okay, yeah, I'll keep my promise, but not to this generation, the next generation. This generation is going to die in the wilderness. And that's what I meant by everyone dies. Obviously, yeah. the second generation doesn't <laughs> die, right? But in the end, everyone dies of that generation. Yeah, the, the idea here is that this generation is still so tied to the ways and mentality of Egypt, right? What we call the flesh pots of Egypt too, right? Because this is still the, you know, the, the appetites for, for that. That they, they aren't able to move into this new... Uh, mode of being a new creation that God is trying to do for them. And so, uh, you know, that generation won't be able to inherit that. And so, right, the generation has to die and you have to move on to the next one. That's kind of the idea here. So uh, my next thing that I was going to go to would be chapter 16 when we get to this actual rebellion. Did you want to talk to to anything in 15? Yeah, let me let me just actually bring out something from chapter 14 first. And that is here we do see, once again, you get an English face-to-face, right? Where Moses is face-to-face. And earlier that was literally mouth-to-mouth. Now it's eye-to-eye. And this is from uh, 14, 14 compare with 12, uh, 12.8, right? And it's interesting too to point out that in verse 23 of 14, if you compare with the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, it actually specifies that the innocent children will be given the land. So that's something that I brought out in explaining what, you know, what the Lord is quoted as saying. And then here it's not here, but in the, 
in the Septuagint it's actually made explicit. The other thing about uh, from 14 is that in verse 33, you know, you have the 40 years that are mentioned that, that, that we've been talking about the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And now we get to the point, which is, as we've said, that all of this generation has to die. 40 years is the typical way in the Bible for saying one generation. Right. We come to the moment of rebellion here. This is chapter 16. This is Korah, and there's others with him. You know, Zornberg actually spends a lot of time on describing this, and and I I won't be able to do all of her commentary justice, so all I can say is I highly recommend that people go and listen to that and and or read it. Um, but this moment here with Cora, uh, actually there's a lot of really embedded in this condensed text you've talked about before, Christopher, that that this is really, you know, compressed. And that's how the Bible is. Yeah. So uh, we have these few sentences, and you wouldn't you wouldn't realize you wouldn't know that there's there's really a lot in there. But the idea here is that Korah comes to Moses and he's like, "What makes you so special? All these people, all the people are holy. Like we're all supposed to be the holy ones of God." And it's almost as wasn't if, he saying earlier that everyone should be a prophet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's almost kind of throwing Moses' argument right back in his face saying, hey, if everybody's supposed to be a prophet, that means we're all holy. What makes you so special? Why should we follow you? And I can see Moses in this moment kind of like being a little, he's right. He's a little speechless. It says he falls on his face, which is kind of a symbol of, of anger, right? He's, he's so frustrated with these, these people all this time. But I also see him as kind of speechless at first. Like, like it's almost like he doesn't, he doesn't know how to respond to that argument. It's kind of a good argument, right? Like, yeah, I mean, you're right. All the people are supposed to be holy. What does make me so special? Um, it turns out that the at issue here isn't, you know, the holy or the the holiness of the people as a whole. And in fact, the people that are coming to him are actually Levites, right? So these are people that are supposed to be have been in that somewhat more inner circle. But at issue here is is the rebellion against and the disunity. And so there's a there's a point at which Moses seems to be trying to use persuasion and speech to talk Korah out of this rebellion and the people out of this rebellion. But what is so interesting about that is that Moses's whole uh, reluctance and hesitancy to even respond to God's call is based on the fact that he says he's he's slow of speech or something like that, right? that he can't he's not able to articulate the message well the people won't believe him and so all of a sudden here we are in this moment you're in the middle of the wilderness a moment of catastrophe and crisis and you have a rebellion on your hands and i'm supposed to persuade these people not to rebel lord this is exactly what i told you would happen right <laughs> i knew it i knew this was going to happen i told you and and i think moses here is you know, as before as well, but Moses is also reaching another point of crisis. He doesn't really know what to do, how to deal with this situation. He He's talking, he's trying to talk to Korah about what should and shouldn't happen. And it comes to this point where it says, it says in verse 31, as soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them was split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. So it's almost as if, you know, Moses 
Zornberg says, Moses keeps speaking because as long as he's talking, the earth will keep its mouth shut. But the moment that Moses shuts his mouth is the moment the earth is going to open its mouth. And so there's this point at which as long as Moses is speaking, there's a chance at which the people that he's talking to will change their minds. But as soon as he stops, the moment of, uh, you know, the moment for the time for speaking is over and it's time for action and the earth opens up, right? Yeah. And there's something else going on here too, Ben, because right before this happens, it's said that it's going to happen if, yeah. right? If this, then that. It's this trial by fire, right? That um, it's, if this happens, it's proof that, you know, Moses. I don't. I, I didn't want to actually go into that, but there's there's more going on here. Yeah, that there's that more going lie. on. <laughs> I actually wanted to to back up to verse thirteen uh, because this is the f- this is the place in which I mentioned earlier that there comes a point, and this is the point where it says, "Is it too little that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must also lord it over us?" It is clear you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey. So they're actually calling Egypt a land of milk and honey, a land flowing with milk and honey, and saying that, you know, he, you brought us out of a place that was this land flowing with milk and honey to die in this wilderness. This is not a land flowing with milk and honey. So, so there's this whole trial by fire going on there, you know, in, in the part that you mentioned. It reminds me, it actually reminds me of the, the trial by fire of Savonarola in... 15th century Florence. (laughs) This is the little friar from Ferrara that stirred up the 15th century Florentines into a fanatical frenzy and had them burn all their vanities, as they were called. This is the famous bonfire of the vanities. And then there's this, you know, he claims to be a prophet. And then, you know, I don't know if you guys, you know, if you know how this works, like the the trial by fire, right? They're going to, if they can walk through the fire and not be burned, then he really is a prophet. And so this is that kind of thing. And Korah is this this ancestor of a group of temple singers, by the way. That's an interesting aside there, too. Huh. Where did you get that from? From reading commentary to uh, verse 16.1. There's actually, his genealogy shows up in Exodus 6.16 through 21. And there's stuff in Psalms that you can look at, too. When we get to chapter 17, this is the point at which uh, you know, this rebellion has happened. And so now they're going to do something about trying to prevent another rebellion from happening. And at question here is authority, right? Who has the authority to lead the people? And so we, the, the Lord tells Moses to go and gather up staffs from all the different tribes. Okay, so a staff or a rod, this is the symbol of authority or power. Remember that this has been Moses's a symbol of authority or power since the beginning of Exodus, right? Or since his calling. And it's how God demonstrated to Moses his power and his calling as a prophet. And so he gathers up the staffs from all the different tribes. This symbolizes the authority of each tribe to rule itself. And they're going to bring all of these staffs into Let's see, they bring them into, into the tabernacle before the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, right? Where I meet with you, he says. So these are brought into the Holy of Holies. 
And after a certain time, it's only Aaron's staff that sprouts. And they know this because they wrote the names on the staffs, right? So they can tell whose is whose. The idea behind this is that uh, Aaron, the tribe that he belongs to, is the one that has the authority right now. And so that is where that legitimately lies. And these other staffs, their authority isn't growing. It's not multiplying. It's not fruitful, right? Um, it's all within this concept of of uh, being able to to germinate, to produce. And so the idea is that the authority is there with with Aaron. And so this is supposed to be a symbol of where the authority resides and supposed to answer the question of Moses and Aaron are the actual authorities of the people. This concept of the staff as a symbol of authority then uh, kind of returns within the narrative. It's kind of been absent for a while. And the idea in some of the, the Midrash commentary is that when God tells Moses to go and get the staff, this is ostensibly the staff that he had had before, but that he he hadn't used it in a while. Um, the last time that we have Moses using it is at the battle right after the Red Sea with the Amalekites. It says that Moses took his staff and went up on the mountain, and then he raised his hands, and then the two uh, the two people came and, and held his hands up. Right while he was while they were fighting the battle, so they would win. Well, you know, Christopher, when we commented on this previously, um, my thought was, hey, he took the staff up with him. It doesn't say he raised the staff, but that must be what he did because, you know, previous to all of this, he always raised the staff, and that's how he did the miracles. Right, the all of the plagues. You, you raise the staff and that's the plague, or you hit the water and, and the water divides or turns the blood or, or anything. The staff is, is where this all originates from, right? This is, this is the, the tool for that. And so, yeah, so we said, oh, the, he must have raised the staff. Um, and, and I think that makes sense. Well, then I got to Zornberg's commentary and it blew me away <laughs> because she went way you know, a lot more layers deeper than than I was uh, would have been confident going, and uh, it was is fascinating. So, uh, one of the things she talks about is that no, it it wasn't the staff that he raised, and there is a specific reason for that. The idea is that indeed his hands were raised in prayer, and the idea is that the palms are open in prayer. And that openness of the palms signifies that yeah, submission and it shows that to there God. Really, that there can't, that there isn't a staff. There can't be, right? This is this is an unarmed yes. man with his hands up, right? Yes, surrendering to God, and so yeah, surrendering to God. And the idea is that this is a this is a moment of of surrendering to God and God's power, rather than imposing our own power and force, as embodied in the symbol and the object of the staff. And so this solidifies by by setting aside the staff in this moment this solidifies the staff as a symbol of authority and um even uh, enforcement, right? Ability to enforce authority or power by violence. And so we we kind of fast forward to this point here in the story and we're going to come up on chapter 20 
And and before we get there, I'll, I'll see if you want to comment on something else. Well, we can. Um, you should. But, you should go into it. But again, it. The, all the precursor to chapter twenty is this concept of of the staff and what it symbolizes and why it's important to to Moses. So, I think you should go into it, and then we can back up and pick up a couple of comments that I have. Okay, great. So, the people uh, at this point, when we get to chapter twenty. They're thirsty again. And and this is actually what's happened is Miriam has died. And there's a whole bunch of commentary about why the people are thirsty now that Miriam's died. But, I, you know, there's things that we can talk about and things that we don't have time to talk about. So uh, that's something we'll leave, leave to the side. Um, the, the Lord tells this to Moses. He says, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron, and command the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Okay, that is the NRSV. The word command the rock is used here. Um, in the KJV, it actually says speak to the rock. And uh, for the purposes of, of what I'm going to talk about here with the commentary and, and what I'm going to pull out, the KJV translation fits better with the exegesis that we're going to talk about here. And that's because for, for me, the, the word command evokes a the idea that it is a it's an imperative of speech but it implied within that imperative of speech is a threat of violence it seems to me or at least there's that lingering there right that if you don't do what i say i'm commanding if you don't do what i say there's a consequence to it and that consequence could be a violent or force consequence whereas the word speak to the rock uh, the idea here is that it's it's simply speech persuasion there's not necessarily implied any any force or violence behind this it's a it's a matter of speech and persuasion what zornberg gets into with this is that he's moses takes the staff and he's supposed to go to the rock but not use the staff but instead use his speech for the water to come out of the rock and this is a moment at which uh, there's this opportunity to present to the people the crossover or the moving on from the old way of doing things with the staff, right? That, that way of force and violence onto a different way, a way of speaking and persuasion. And that Moses in this moment doesn't make that, that connection or doesn't make that jump. When the Lord tells him, take the staff, but speak, this is supposed to tell the people, okay, the staff is there but it's not being used to do this anymore. What we're going to use is speech, not force. And this becomes a missed opportunity because what happens is Moses hits the rock with the staff, evoking the idea that, okay, these things, these miracles, these provisions are brought about by a a forceful, violent act. In fact, there's something that's coupled with this. It says, so Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together for the rock, and he said to them, Listen, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their livestock drank. Okay. So, uh, again, two problems going on here. One is the fact that Moses struck the rock with the staff instead of speaking to it, as the Lord had commanded. And the second is, when he speaks to the people, he does it in a very backhanded way, right? He says, listen, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? 
You know, I, I remember years ago, there was a talk uh, given by Neely Maxwell, and he he referenced this part here, and he, he talked about <laughs> it as a as a Moses's pronoun problem. Moses right? had a that, mouse in his pocket. <laughs> that Moses used this term, we, right? The, the idea is that it's him and Aaron, right, that are doing this. And it's like, right. well, wait, Moses, where's God in what's happening here? And for the fact that that Moses didn't acknowledge that this was of God that was providing this, and he didn't follow God's instructions, that's when these very next verses, we get this, this uh, dictate from the Lord that Moses won't you know, be able to enter to the promised land because of the, the attitude that he had in this scenario towards the commandments of the Lord and his perception of the people themselves, adversarial, rather than forgiving and and loving and merciful as the Lord had wanted to demonstrate. So this point is further driven home by this this very these very next verses because the people are are traveling again and they come to uh, the Edom. Uh, they, it says the messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. And what the Moses does is he sends these messengers and they're trying to persuade using speech, right? Not threats. In fact, in all this discussion with the king, there's no threats. Yeah. And so Moses seems to be like, okay, God, I'll, I'll try it out, right? I'll try this speech thing out. You said I'm not supposed to use the rod to, to smite things anymore. So I'm going to try this speech thing out. And so he he he's talking with this king and negotiating, trying to negotiate peaceful passage through. He says, even if we drink water or something, you know, we'll pay you for it and we'll just stay on the path. We won't bother you. It doesn't work, right? The the king says no. And so the Israelites right. just go away. There's no battle, right? That we might have expected. Um if we if we read forward or back a little bit, we would have expected some sort of battle to happen here. No battle happens. Now, fun fact, they were going to take the King's Highway, right? Yeah. The King's Highway is the Transjordanian route that connects the Gulf of Aqaba with Syria. And this route is still in use today. You and I have been on the King's Highway, Ben. Hmm. And I've been snorkeling in the Gulf of Aqaba, which is one of the top <laughs> yeah. snorkeling sites in the world. Did you do that too? I did not. And I've been to Syria. So Took a ferry down there, but I didn't. Oh, did you cross over to Egypt? To Sharm el-Sheikh, yeah. Sharm el-Sheikh, yeah, that's in Egypt. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I didn't do that. So that's still, there's still, and there's also a mention here somewhere of Madaba, which is in, in Jordan. There's this this cool church where there's this medieval um, map of Jerusalem in mosaic in the floor, and it was actually covered over to hide it with um, plaster. And then now the plaster is, you know, has revealed the the uh, mosaic underneath. So Madaba shows up here too. I see the reference to Madaba, but I didn't see a, a reference to Madaba. It's the same place. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, you're you're talking about a transliteration difference. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, between between the way that it's written in the Hebrew and transliterated in the English versus the way we read it, which was from Arabic translated transliterated into English. Madaba, 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 same place. But that brings us, I think, to chapter 21, now that we've gone uh, down uh, the King's Highway on a, on a trip down memory lane. Yeah. And, and here we've got prob- one, of the, one of the top memorable Moses stories in the wilderness, right? Like if you, you ask um, 
most people, you know, what what happened with Moses and and the people in the wilderness. This, this is, is probably one of the top uh, stories that that's going to be remembered and, and mentioned, right? And this uh, is the, the place where serpents. I was getting at when I got ahead of myself earlier. This is where the people speak not only against Moses, but against God. Hmm. And that's why God sends the fiery serpents. And then at the same time that he poisons the people, he offers the antidote, which is look to this serpent on a staff, which, you know, this is a symbol of healing in that time and space. Still is. And, you know, it still is. That's right. It still is. Uh, and even in our time and space. And I think, you know, it's we, we as the Christological interpretation is this is a symbol of, of Jesus on the cross. I get it. True enough, because that's how symbols work. These don't this doesn't have to be um, historical. It's not like this is what was intended by Moses necessarily. Right. For right. it to be true. It's still true. Right. This is a symbol. It does do the, the the thing that it does. You and I read something from uh, from the Jewish tradition that's saying the point here is to look to God as a source of healing. And by the way, the, a, another really interesting point about this is there's an etiological explanation to why this is why we're getting this serpent on a staff, and that is because later on, you know, there's this bronze serpent that uh, King Hezekiah, there's going to be, and this is actually well attested that there's worshiping of, of the image of a serpent, but there's going to be the, the one that the King, that King Hezekiah destroys because it's become an object of worship. And so this is in, this is from second Kings 18, four. And so this story in numbers gives us an etiology for the serpent of Hezekiah's time by writing it back into this. Um, what did you call it? Imagined wilderness story. Yeah, the imagined past. Yeah, yeah I the think that that past, would yeah. that could make sense. You know that this this story is is one that has been placed there in order to explain the existence of that serpent on the pole, so to speak, that would be in the temple. Right. So, but you know, the point still the the Christological interpretation stands. You know, symbolically speaking, look to God and live. Right. God is the giver of life. It, it, earlier in one of these chapters, I don't remember where, it's something we didn't really go into. Uh, he's the, um, you know, the, the, the word for spirit and wind is the same. He's the one who gives the spirit of life, the, the wind of life, the breath of life, right? Yeah. There is very powerful symbolism in this, you know, the, the looking to God. It's, it's the idea that this is something that is raised up on a pole. You have to, you have to change your perception, right? This evokes ideas of repentance you have to change your perception from looking down where the snake is that just bit you, right? And that's where you should be looking, right? Because that's the danger. But you're looking up instead. And so it's you're raising your your view to something higher um, than than what's below you, but something that's that's higher. And so I, I think there's there's some pretty profound symbolism within this concept um, that is brought out in, in a lot of different traditions. Again, it does get brought out with within a Christological uh, context, both within the Book of Mormon and the New Testament, looking at Christ as the one that's raised up on the cross, and that if we just look to him, right, then we will be healed. The idea being here that we've been redeemed, and it's really just a matter of our 
perceiving that, of our changing our perception of that repentance of that seeing God anew. And if we will just look up, and the Book of Mormon talks about this in, in saying like, it it all they had to do was look, right? There was this simple thing, but some of them wouldn't do it because it was too easy. And so they think, well, it can't be that easy. It can't be that easy to just, you know, look to God, change our perception, and to truly become aware of his love. It can't be that easy. There's got to be something more difficult about it. Like I've got to, you know, sacrifice seven lambs and three bullocks and, you know, all of these things. It's got to be more complicated. And uh, the idea, you know, brought out by the Book of Mormon prophets and the New Testament is that ultimately that's what it boils down to is changing our perception, where we're looking. And that will make all the difference. Yeah. So I found here in verse 30, the, the reference to Madhava. And then there's uh, this other place, you know, anciently, I don't know how to pronounce it, Diban, it's, it's modern uh, Diban in, in Jordan. That's someplace I haven't been. Have you been there, Diban? Mm, doesn't sound familiar. Nope. That brings us to, you know, there's actually one more thing about the, the serpent of bronze. It actually turns out to be a pun in Hebrew since both the word for serpent and uh, bronze, they come from the same root. And it's, also, it's actually, again, to the point of the, the King Hezekiah's um, etiology, you know, the, the object of worship in his time, Second Kings 18.4, it's also from the same root you get the Nehushtan, the, the bronze serpent that King Hezekiah destroys. So I think, you know, this is possibly an etiology for that, especially in this imagined past that we speak of. So we are coming up on Where does that, two hours yeah. here, Christopher. Um, I mean, yeah. the, the only other thing that I really uh, wanted to talk about was in chapter 31. Um, but it, it's also something that I hate to end with because it's so awful. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can't really pass over the story of the talking ass in silence. That's true. <laughs> it's an interesting story, right? Because here you have this this seer, and and I think the joke here is that that his that his donkey sees more than he sees, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting too to note that he's you know so the king of the Moabites, right? The king of the Moabites wants him to wants Balaam to curse the Israelites, and he and he can't. He can't curse them. In fact, he talks to their God, which is interesting, right? You, 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 I think you have a point to, to make about that. And he actually ends up blessing, blessing them. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. the point here is that Balaam has a relationship with the Lord, right? Like he talks with them and, and he gets revelation from the Lord. I mean, Balaam, in the text, it basically is telling us that Balaam is a prophet uh, in in some ways, not, not exactly uh, – you know, I don't know that the text would say this exactly, but in some ways equivalent to to Moses in the sense that he does have conversations with yeah. God. He speaks with the Lord. You know, I mean, I think when it comes to ending, Ben, again, we are coming up on two hours. You know, it ends where it ends. And, you know, and the, and the story goes on. We have uh, all of Deuteronomy next week. You have uh, Moses's last lecture, right? Deuteronomy. He has a lot to say. Another 30 plus chapters, right? There's just one thing that that I was going to bring out here from chapter 25, and that is when it says to prostitute themselves, 
when we, when we talk about prostituting ourselves, this doesn't have to be about sexual relations. It can just be religious apostasy. This is a meaning of, of that. And I think we can, you know, go to the, to the end, you know, to where this, this book ends. Yeah. So what's going on here is there seems to be this point at which there's, there's not really a point at which it explains how all these people necessarily are dying, even though death is, is a constant thing. But we kind of reach this point where it's like, okay, 40 years have passed. You know, I think of these movies that I'm watching and it, you know, it kind of switches scenes right. and it says 40 years later, you know, <laughs> and it's, and the assumption in the 40 years later is, okay, all that stuff that you just saw happening that went on for 40 years. Okay. And, and we're not going to show you it all because it's just a bunch of the same old stuff over and over and over again. All right. It's like I said earlier, we don't really see everyone dying. We just get to this later census. What chapter is the second census in? Do you remember? It's in 26, right? Yes, it's 26. Yeah, so the second census, this is when we find out in chapter 26 that, that all the first generation is, has died, right? That, that, that generation has passed. Right. And now we get the supposed conquest of Canaan. And we've, we've already mentioned that, you know, in terms of archaeological evidences for and against. And, and of course, the, this idea of a holy war, as it's described, that just doesn't fit God as we understand him in a, from a Christological perspective, you know, from, from what uh, Gregory Boyd calls the cruciform hermeneutic, right? If we understand God incarnate, Jesus Christ is God incarnate, and we see the, the suffering Jesus on the cross, and we and we make that the standard by which we judge. And and this is this is something that you and I and Shiloh all read from Greg Boyd. Cross Vision, I think, is the the shorter version. There's a, a two volume, more detailed version. I can't remember what that's called. And then and then we we have our own. You know, Shiloh brought out a not just a vision of who Christ is, but what he taught. Right, his his core teachings were in the Sermon on the Mount. And so when we look at that. We don't see here that that there's that you can really justify this ancient Near Eastern view of a just war, which, by the way, the Catholics picked up on. Just war theory was picked up by um, Augustine in the 300s, and they bring it forward, and now everybody subscribes to it among Christians, including Latter-day Saints. And yet, the Catholic Church, who really, you know, it was Augustine who really formulated this just war theory and, you know, systematically— the Catholic Church has recently repudiated just war theory and said something to the effect of all war is bad because it negatively impacts God's children. And we had a similar statement from the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah, just recently Maybe the, the last most, conference. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the most uh, clear you know, statement, just like the Pope's, all war is bad. Right, so that you can't really have a just war. I remember Hugh Nibley saying, when there's a war, both sides are wrong. We like to think that there's good guys and bad guys, right? And we, and we start playing cops and robbers from the time we're kids. And uh, maybe we justify the violence in the films that we watch or show our children because, well, there's good guys and bad guys. But if, if, there's, if we've come to a point of war, both sides are wrong. Something has gone wrong and things have you know broken down. And we like to we see all these again. Who are the um, the the enemies here? The the somethingites, right? These are the 
it's it's about otherizing it's people, the midianites that's, that's here. what you have to do well that's one of yeah. them right the yeah there's a bunch the yeah anchorites yeah. the anchorites right the anchorites are the the sworn enemies of these people and so these are others that's the point and but these others are our brothers that's the reality right we're all Benny adam we're all children of adam so, you know, maybe it'd be nice if we could end there, but we, we are going to go to where the text ends. <laughs> well, so stopping off just on, on chapter 31 on this point, Christopher, you know, chapter 31 in the book of Numbers probably presents, you know, the most egregiously abhorrent um, account of of what we, what the text would say is divinely sanctioned violence, right? I mean, we have... The implication here is that they go and they they kill everybody and they they take all their stuff. And Moses says, hey, you didn't kill enough of the people. You need to kill more of them. And so they're like, okay, well, we didn't just kill the men. No, you need to kill all the women too and and all the male children. And the only ones you need to leave alive are the women that are still virgins, right, That ha- that haven't slept with a man yet. And, and that's just so you can take them yeah, for yourself. Yeah, and that's so that you can yeah. take them for yourself. And it's like, yeah. wait a second, what's going on here? Where are the good guys in this story? Yeah, yeah. So, some of this stuff reminds me, I remember seeing videos on YouTube where people took verses like this and they went around and whether they didn't show what book they were reading from or whether they made it to appear as though they were reading from the Quran that everybody assumes is violent, and and only the Quran is violent in this way. And they would read this verse and, and you know, people would say, oh, that's terrible, you know, and, and they don't know this, that this is here in this text, right? And and by the way, the Quran, you know, usually when it has these depictions of violent, violence, uh, such as maybe something we see here, that, that somebody could at least think that, that it came from the Quran. Usually there's there's more to the story and there's uh, a better way of reading it, which is what we're suggesting here. Yeah, I'm sure there's there's better ways of reading this. We've proposed some of them as well, yeah. Yeah, you know, in verse 55 of, what is this, chapter 33? Yeah. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those whom you will let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They shall trouble you in the land where you're settling, and I will do to you as I thought to do to them. And it's interesting because as I pointed out that we don't have archaeological evidence that that this conquest ever happened. And we have lots of evidence that it didn't. And so if what in fact happened was the people moved in and lived together peacefully, we have this example of what's possible that then gets covered up by this narrative that's this sort of this foundational myth that tells us how we became who we are and how we came to possess this land. And how um, we have these big armies and we can conquer and nobody better mess with us, right? It's too bad. It's really too bad. But, you know, the point isn't lost on those of us who can read it in light of history. History that was not what the authors of this text were doing and that wasn't even available to them if they were even interested in doing it which they weren't because they couldn't be because they didn't have the tools. I think it is or the desire. Yeah, I think it is an important point to, you know, bring up like you did that if we are looking at this from a historical perspective, we can say, you know, with a 
a decent amount of certainty that historically this didn't happen. And so that's some consolation, right? <laughs> a little bit. I know there are things yeah. like this that did happen historically, right? There's there are there are all the ancient time. things yeah. that happen like this all the time. And that's actually the point, right? They are they are this is an ancient mindset, ancient conquest mindset. And part of that is to tout all of these victories and total annihilations of peoples as trophies, right? To say, hey, we accomplished this, we accomplished that. And that's a that's a very common thing to do within the ancient world. Oh yeah. And we'll get later on uh from the Crusaders that they rode up to their up to their knees in blood, you know, in Jerusalem. Which is interesting because when when they came into Jerusalem, they you know, it was very clever of the of the potentates of Western Europe to unite people who were fighting with each other and problematic for the people in power this was to send them off to fight against a common enemy in Jerusalem go go um fight for Jerusalem and if you die trying you go to heaven which sounds a lot like um you know the sort of the the narratives that we hear about Islam right and so interestingly you know you have even to this day we have Palestinian latter-day saints you know you have arabs who are living in peace you have Muslims and Christians who are both Arabs living in peace together in Jerusalem. And when these Western Europeans come in, they're killing everyone indiscriminately. They don't know an Arab from uh, the Asari, a Muslim from a Christian when they're all Arabs. Uh, there's a story about a group that, that was saved because they were singing a Christian hymn. Although it was in Arabic, the Crusaders knew the tune. And that's the only reason they were saved. But you get this kind of, you know, again, this this kind of hyperbole that they wrote up to their knees and bloods through Jerusalem uh, in blood. So another thing to bring out here about this story is that in verse in chapter 34, verses 1 through 15, you get these boundaries for the promised land that are this ideal that was that has never corresponded to Israel's actual boundaries at any time, neither then nor now. And yet, of course, you have Zionists who believe that these are the boundaries, the legitimate boundaries uh, that, that belong to them, right? As a, their promised land. And so the text can be, it can cause problems, right? If it's, if it's, if it's read wrong. These are, yeah, these are dangerous texts, right? So we, so we propose a nonviolent reading, and, and I hope that we've given enough of a sense of, of why we would read this text this way, not out of just a desire, I think that's necessary, right? That's the starting point. We look for a way. Um, but the point is, that you don't find these these readings without looking for them. But it's not just because you desire them to be. It's that they are. And you find them through your desire and through seeking, right? Seek and you shall find. Okay. Well, I think we'll end there, Christopher. Um, there is really certainly more to the book of numbers as you may have guessed and i wouldn't have guessed <laughs> just maybe a couple months right. ago um mm -hmm. but uh, we we highly recommend uh the books lectures by zornberg and there's there's plenty of other commentary on this as well um it's really depthless on this but uh we'll leave it there with those recommendations and if and if you want the experience again of 40 years in the wilderness, just sit down and read numbers front to back. It only takes about six hours. It'll feel like 40 years. Well, thanks for listening. Yeah. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thanks. Thanks.